your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It's a great day despite the fact that uh, people are cringing at the prospect of the United States being engaged in as many as three major wars simultaneously. Are we ready for it? Could we ever be ready for it? We will be talking about an alarming new piece by a former national security advisor to President Trump, somebody who uh, is on his own now and looking at the unpreparedness of the United States for dealing with possible wars and not just the wars involving uh, Israel right now and uh, Ukraine, but a potential war involving China overtaking uh, Taiwan and a potential war involving the United States directly tangling with Iran, which would not be a, a takeover or an easy matter either. We will talk about that and talk about why the United States could actually lose a potential multi-front war and lose it quickly. Uh, it should be sobering to every American. We will get to that on the Medved Show. We'll also be speaking about the politics of hate, which both parties are practicing right now, which is one of the reasons that some of the third-party candidates are gaining some traction, including potential third-party candidate Joe Manchin, who is just not denying that he is looking at a race for the presidency. We'll talk about that with David French, a conservative columnist uh, for the New York Times. And we'll also be speaking to Steve Forbes later on about the economy and uh, whether Bidenomics has any chance at all of actually delivering that soft landing uh, from inflation and turmoil and tumult that so many people have talked about and hoped for. Who knows where we are going right now? Well, Steve Forbes, if anyone is the person who knows. And plus, we'll be reviewing a big new movie with two Oscar winners uh, co-starring and uh, Julianne Moore and uh, Natalie Portman. And uh, the movie is called May-December, about a scandalous couple with a an, an unhealthy age difference. Well, if the uh, you keep in mind the young man was 13 at least in the story in the movie, when he became involved with the 36-year-old married mother. Uh, We'll get to that film, whether it's worth seeing. And a big new film released on Netflix as well, another film that, that might even attract its own Oscar attention. And a new comedy animated comedy with the voice of Adam Sandler. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. Uh, First off, something has happened in Oregon that isn't crazy or nuts or weird. And a lot of the stories that we do from Oregon, and this is no offense to all those Oregonians who are listening to the show, but this state's strange. I mean, it is. Uh, Here in the state of Washington, big new news, the Republican for governor, has been a guest on this show, Dave Reichert, is actually running ahead in the first substantive poll that looks at the potential general election. We'll get to that. 
But in Oregon, the headline in the Wall Street Journal is Oregonians Rethink Decriminalizing Drugs. And they point out that nearly three years into an experiment that uh, proponents hoped would spark a nationwide relaxation of drug laws, many in Oregon have turned against the decriminalization initiative known as Measure 110, which passed back in 2020, the same year as the big election controversy, of course, involving President Trump. But the the drug legalization passed with 58% of the vote. That's a landslide. People uh, now have been buried under that landslide. I mean, literally, <laughs> buried, dead people. Uh, people sprawled on sidewalks and using fentanyl with no fear of consequence have become a common sight in uh, cities such as Eugene and Portland. Business owners and local leaders are upset, but so are liberal voters who hope decriminalization would lead to more people getting help. In reality, few drug users are taking advantage of state-funded rehabilitation programs. Change appears likely now. A coalition of city officials, police chiefs, and district attorneys recently called on the state legislature to recriminalize hard drugs. Not decriminalize, but recriminalize. And uh, a measure to do so is in the works for next year's ballot. A recent poll found the majority of Oregonians support the idea. I mean, it was a fickle electorate. They have a 58% voting to decriminalize everything. And now you're talking about uh, just five years later, and people uh, are already talking about recriminalizing. The fundamental problem, according to law enforcement officers and researchers, is that the threat of jail time uh, hasn't been replaced with a new incentive for people who are struggling with addiction to seek treatment. In other words, if you're not going to get thrown in jail and you're not going to get punished for using drugs, uh, well, why not? Well, why not? Because it may kill you. But uh, people are not thinking that, of course. The, um, the new in, no new incentive for people struggling with addiction to seek treatment. Some 6,000 tickets that's what they have. You you get a ticket written for you and you get referred to a treatment program under the Oregon program. That's not working. Some 6,000 tickets have been issued for drug possession since decriminalization went into effect in 2021. But how many people with 6,000 tickets being issued have actually gotten the treatment they're supposed to get? Of the 6,000, 92. <laughs> I mean, it's just... It's appalling. Only 92 people have called and completed assessments needed to connect them to services, according to the nonprofit that operates the helpline. The only penalty for those who don't call is a $100 fine, which is rarely enforced. Yeah, if you're lying out in a drug-addled stupor on the sidewalk somewhere, it's tough to get you to come in and even pay $100. The number of fatal overdoses in Oregon during the 12 months that ended in May rose 23% from that same period a year earlier to 1,500 
That's uh, more than four a day. According to preliminary uh, federal data, advocates of drug decriminalization blame Oregon's continued problems on nationwide trends, including the the rise of deadly fentanyl and increased homelessness. Yeah, but it is worse in Oregon, and obviously the whole idea of decriminalization is it was supposed to take care of that, to reduce drug deaths by making sure that people went in and got treatment. Chris Wigg, who is executive director of Emergence, uh, Emergency Addiction and Behavioral Therapies in Eugene, said that although more people are getting peer support through programs funded by the measure, fewer are getting treatment. He said there's been a 25% drop in participation in uh, their programs. There are people who were getting treatment before who are not getting it now. It's people who are involved in the criminal justice system and they were getting treated. Now they don't. So what is the point of decriminalizing the situation when it's clearly going to make things worse? What do the people who want more decriminalization instead of recriminalization with compulsory treatment, what do they say? We will get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. And looking for satisfaction, well, there's a, a brand new album. Yes, new album by the Rolling Stones. And uh, uh, upcoming uh, big tour, getting the band back together again. Uh, that's going to happen. But uh, speaking about satisfaction in Oregon, in changing drug policy again, uh, headline in the Wall Street Journal, Oregonians Rethink Decriminalizing Drugs. And today in the local paper in Portland, the Oregonian, big headline, why Portland has failed to open a desperately needed new sobering center as addiction soars. Okay, why is the addiction soaring in Oregon in particular? Because Oregon led the country, and they were very proud of this at the time, back in 2020, when they passed an initiative decriminalizing all drugs, even hard drugs, even fentanyl. Uh, and uh, fentanyl, of course, hasn't really caught up. The country hasn't caught up with the, how, just how deadly it is. And uh, in the piece of the Wall Street Journal, they write that uh, Michelle Lowe is a 56-year-old bookstore clerk in Eugene. Eugene is the home of uh, the University of Oregon. And it's, uh, in many, many ways, just a lovely town, um, almost 200,000 people. In any event, Michelle Lowe, who's 56 years old, bookstore clerk in Eugene, voted for the measure decriminalizing drugs enthusiastically. She says she's a Grateful Dead fan who has experimented with mind-altering substances. I'm sure she's the only Grateful Dead fan like that. Uh, Lowe long supported liberalizing Oregon's drug laws to be more like those of the Netherlands. 
But as she watched public drug use flourish in the streets of Eugene, she feared she had voted the wrong way. Okay, that's at least admirable to acknowledge you made a mistake. Now it's up to the voters to correct it. Uh, this uh, lady, Michelle Lowe, said that there is constant problems all over town. It doesn't matter where you live with people strung out on drugs. She described herself as a communist. Well, I, <laughs> I guess she's part of that uh, a vermin that has to be uprooted in the country. In any event, she says, I pride myself on being a bit cynical, but obviously I was very naive. Yes, I think if you describe yourself as a communist, you're very naive and ill-informed. Okay, but that's another story. Because on this question of drugs, the, the problem is so obvious. They describe another woman uh, on a recent morning, uh, Janina Rager, a community engagement specialist with the Eugene police, roused a man who was sprawled in front of Gardner Floor Covering, a family-run store downtown. She asked him to leave and to clean up the accumulation of garbage that surrounded him, including bits of aluminum foil that are typically used as wrappers for meth or fentanyl. The uh, owner of the shop that he was sprawled in front of, whose name is Matt Sigmund, said the number of people loitering and doing drugs in front of his store has doubled since the measure passed. Customers are scared to walk in now. Uh, each morning, his employees must clear the sidewalk of debris that often includes feces and needles. That's a happy combination. It just keeps getting worse, Siegmund said. I feel like these people on the streets have more rights than I do. On a recent weekday in downtown Portland, a man explained the varieties of fentanyl to a tourist <laughs> who wanted to know what everyone was smoking off small squares of aluminum foil. There were dozens of people doing it in the area, some swaying like zombies, others crumpled, unconscious on the sidewalk. The man said getting arrested three years ago motivated him to get clean. He got a job at a gas station and stayed sober because it was required while he was on probation. But as soon as he finished probation last fall, he was back on drugs. I didn't have any reason to keep clean and sober. After that, he said, no more fear of going to jail. Other states that once seemed likely to follow Oregon's lead are pumping the brakes, thank God. And they should pump the brakes about marijuana, too, not just about hard drugs. But other states that once seemed likely to follow Oregon's lead are pumping the brakes. Earlier this year, the governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, who's leaving after three terms, uh, he's a Democrat who signed a law that uh, boosts funding for treatment while maintaining criminal penalties for drug possession. Uh, Max Williams, former director of the Oregon State Prison System, said he is skeptical the state legislature will make adequate changes to the law. He has a group preparing a measure for next year's ballot that would again make it a crime to possess hard drugs such as fentanyl while keeping in place the new funding for treatment, which comes uh, from cannabis taxes. 
Okay. Meanwhile, there's in the New York Times this week, headline, A Monster, Super Meth and Other Drugs Push Crisis Beyond Opioids. Millions of U.S. drug users now are addicted to several substances, not just opioids like fentanyl and heroin. The shift is making treatment far more difficult. The United States is in a new and perilous period in its battle against illicit drugs. The scourge is not only opioids such as fentanyl, but a rapidly growing practice that the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention labels polysubstance use. Over the last three years, studies of people addicted to opioids, a population estimated to be in the millions, have consistently shown that between 70 and 80 percent of them also take other illicit substances. The shift that is stymieing treatment efforts and confounding state, local and federal policies. What's so remarkable about all of this is this is just such an obvious problem and it creates these side effects that people are aware of all the time. Obviously, this promotes crime. And people, in order to maintain their drug habits uh, and basically defy the law or any standards of decency or even self-preservation, that is encouraged by more drug use. And then, of course, homelessness. Uh, A very high percentage, most estimates are a clear majority of homeless people have not only a lack of a home problem, but have uh, substance abuse and drug problems. Yes, very often the abuse, the substance that is abused by homeless people happens to be alcohol. But the entire situation clearly needs a different approach a tougher approach, an approach with serious consequences for drug use, which contributes so much negativity to our society. We'll be right back on the Medved Show. You're listening to the mighty Michael. My man, Michael Medved, the mighty mouth of the modern megaphone. Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there is um, news about George Santos, more news. Uh, he, as they describe in the hotline, George Santos, representative of New York District 3, has been ostracized by his own colleagues. <laughs> what took them so long? Once you get the idea that this guy is involved with credit card fraud for his donors... Can we just think about that for a moment? You're dealing with people who believe in you, uh, who share your politics, who want to send you to Congress. And and nobody in in America is so rolling in money that it doesn't matter. And so, okay, let's say grandma out there decides to send you $25. That's a very typical size for a political contribution. And then you say, thank you, to grandma because she sent you her credit card number and then you use it for credit card fraud uh, in order to buy fancy meals, Botox. And by the way, he's 35 years old. Does he need Botox? Is that an important political expense? He, um, 
he takes the uh, money and uses it for that. And it also specified in the report yesterday from the House Ethics Committee that was released, he also specified he used some of these campaign funds that he stole by using people's credit cards fraudulently. He uh, used those funds for uh, OnlyFans, which is a, uh, a a porn site. And and again, remember once upon a time, uh, George Santos was claiming that he was gay and Jewish and happily married to another guy, and, and none of which turned out to be true. Uh, the report leveled a bevy of accusations against Santos, finding that the lawmaker filed incomplete financial reports to the Federal Election Commission. Yeah, he never told them about only fans. Uh, used campaign funds for personal purposes. Yes, I think Botox is a personal uh, purpose. And violated the Ethics and Government Act in relation to the financial discussions, uh, disclosures to the House and engage in fraudulent contact in uh, campaign fundraising. Santos's retirement opens up a prime pickup opportunity for Democratic President uh, Biden carried that district by eight points in 2020. In other words, Santos in that district uh, not only did better than Biden, he did better than Trump did in that district. Uh, what what was it that was magical that drew drew support for George Santos? That is a riddle of human nature. And uh, then there's more about uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, it says in the hotline that more of Tim Scott's donors are reportedly shifting their support to former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley. After the senator suspended his presidential campaign last weekend, several acquaintances of GOP mega-donor Paul Singer, who gives hundreds of thousands, no, actually millions to conservative causes, are donating now to Nikki Haley. Haley rejected uh, DeSantis's offer of a one-on-one -on -one debate on Fox News. Haley, who has jumped in the polls in recent weeks, has experience in the spotlight, and it could be crucial if she ends up in a head-to-head -head race with Trump. While running for governor in 2010, Haley faced unproven accusations that she had cheated on her husband. Uh, they were sleazy accusations made by braggadocious people who were her political enemies, obviously. Uh, but her campaign successfully turned the attacks on their head, using them to attack Haley's male opponents in the gubernatorial race as a taxpayer-funded fraternity party that had become crumbling down. And uh, meanwhile, today in Iowa, the Christian conservative group Family Leader is hosting a family discussion roundtable with DeSantis, Haley, and venture capitalist uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. In other words, the only surviving candidates, beside from Trump, of course. That was taking place today in Des Moines. Trump is not expected to attend, though he was invited. The leader of, of the family leader is a guy named Bob Vanderplatz, who has endorsed the ultimate 
GOP caucus winner in the last three open races. And he said he will endorse somebody by Christmas. On a Monday call with fundraisers, DeSantis told donors he is expecting an endorsement from Vander Plaats within a week of the roundtable. Uh, Vander Plaats said the jury is still out on who he will choose. Uh, it doesn't sound that he will be choosing President Trump, however. There is a brand new Emerson College polling, WHDH poll of New Hampshire voters. It finds President Donald Trump with 49% of voter support. That's consistent with his support in August. In other words, no change. Unlike the August survey, however, a candidate reaches double digits this month. Uh, Nikki Haley, whose support increased 14 percentage points from 4% in August to 18% this November. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie follows with 9%, consistent with his August support, followed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 7%. Well, what that means is that if you put together uh, DeSantis and Christie and Nikki Haley, uh, that's just about equal to Trump. But, of course, it's not so easy to put people together, but who knows what happens between now and uh, the primary in New Hampshire, uh, which is, I believe it's the first week in February. It's like two weeks after the Iowa caucuses. Vivek Ramaswamy gets only 5%, uh, followed by uh, uh, the senator from South Dakota, Tim Scott, who is no longer in the running. Tim Scott gets 2%, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum gets 2%. 9% of voters are undecided. What's very, very difficult about polling in New Hampshire, and the reason that uh, people who know what's going on in politics know never to take it, uh, any of the polling too seriously, is because in New Hampshire, it's wide open which side you want to vote on. And this time, when there is no real contest in the Democratic side of the ledger, there are a bunch of Democrats who may be motivated to vote for one of the Republicans. They, they probably, if independents and Democrats are going to end up voting in the Republican primary, it's unlikely that they would be supporting Trump, which is why... This uh, primary, I think, is going to be much closer than the polling indicates. And because there will be a, uh, a number of people who come out because there are local issues on this as well. But uh, where voting on the Republican side of things gives Democrats something to do, maybe even something to get excited about. Uh, is it appropriate to get excited about uh, a, a new policy? which is um, the need to uh, think small because so many of our environmental technologies, which are supposed to provide grand sweeping solutions for everything, uh, don't really seem to work. We'll talk about that and part of the problem with environmental politics uh, with the Washington Policy Center and Todd Myers. Coming up on the MedVet Show. I'm a 
course, deeply honored to receive the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Medved Show, always a pleasure to welcome back to the show Todd Myers, who is uh, the official uh, chief of environmental issues for the outstanding Washington Policy Center, uh, Improving Lives Through Free Market Solutions. He's director of the Center for the Environment. And he has two decades in environmental policy. He's also the author of the book, Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. And you pointed out something here that's actually very amusing. Uh, And normally you, you hear about environmental issues, you don't think it's amusing except for the recent story about the unsupervised hippos running rampage in uh, uh, in Colombia uh, okay you have a reproduction of a, a state announcement that they were very proud of apparently about the solid waste recycling rate and they put on the this uh, announcement recovery rate 40.7 percent and then they say, it's trending down, but they have a big arrow that is going up. Uh, are they confused, Todd? What's going on? So, yeah, so that graphic comes from Washington State. Um, there is a group called um, in-state government that Governor Inslee set up called Results Washington. And purportedly, Results Washington is supposed to track results, make sure that Washington is meeting its goals, environmental and otherwise, and one of the ones they track is recycling. Um, And I use that one just to show that despite all the talk in Washington State about how much we care about the environment and how we're leaders, we actually are doing very poorly. And the recycling one I chose in particular because first, just on raw numbers, our recycling rate has actually gone down significantly in the last 10 years. But the graphic itself has two things. One, it says recovery rate. And then on the same graphic elsewhere, it says recycling. Well, those are two different things. They measure two different things. Um, And as you said, they can't even get the words and the graphic to match where one says we're trending down, which is true, but the arrow shows we're going up. And it just shows how slipshod and how careless the state actually is when it comes to tracking results on uh, environmental sustainability. Okay. With all of the heightened concern about climate change and other environmental issues, why in the name of heaven would we be doing worse when it comes to something as basic and relatively easy as recycling? What What's going wrong? There's a whole range of problems, and I think it just shows how, one, silly it is to fixate on some of these metrics in the first place. One is that it has been harder to have people take our recycling. China used to take our recycling. They don't anymore. So the infrastructure, the national infrastructure for recycling is less. 
The other thing is, is that people are using, reusing um, things more than they used to be. And so, in fact, recycling isn't even a metric the state tracks since 2016. They attract what's called a recovery rate, which includes reuse and a variety of other things, which I think is a valid issue. But again, it just goes to the point that the state's metric uh, is ironically using something that the state doesn't even track, hasn't tracked for the last seven years. Okay, now it's been known for a very long time that when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, transportation has been a major factor. Uh, but uh, uh, why is it with, again, all of the effort and some of the fairly radical solutions pushed by the Inslee administration, a liberal governor of Washington, why is it that we haven't made progress on that, that the uh, greenhouse gas emissions from transportation are actually up in this state? Why is that happening? Well, a variety of things. One is is that it also depends on where you start to count. Um, you know, 2020 was a very low year, and so since then we've gone up. Uh, you know, transportation emissions have trended downward over the last 15 years because cars are more efficient, but people are also driving more. And one of the things that I that frustrates me is, is about climate discussion and makes conservatives rightly skeptical like me um, about some of these climate policies is that they say that they care about co2 emissions but then they try to sneak in a lot of left-wing policies so what you will hear from folks is oh we need to reduce the number of miles people travel in order to reduce emissions but of course we are moving to hybrid vehicles electric vehicles um, fuel efficiency is getting much better we can drive more miles and actually have CO2 emissions going down, and that's what we've been seeing in recent years. So why do we need to reduce vehicle miles traveled? And a lot of people uh, rightly suspect, including me, that it's because it is an agenda, it is an ideological agenda to get people out of their cars rather than just to reduce CO2 emissions. And I think that's why we are failing on a lot of these things is because ideology, at the end of the day, trumps effectiveness on the environment. Okay, so with all these changes you're talking about with the electric vehicles and, and again, a great deal of government attention and even trying to bribe people with special tax breaks and uh, building solar panels and all of that, why you say that the greenhouse gas emissions from transportation are up, not down, since 2019, before the pandemic? And they are why is that, again, clear, do yeah. we have a simple explanation for why that's happening? Um, basically because people are driving more. Um, people are uh, driving more miles. Their cars are slightly more efficient, but the driving offsets that. And there's no reason that that's a bad thing, right? People should be able to drive. They should be free. They should be able to make their own choices. But over the long run, we will see, even with increased miles, we will see CO2 emissions go down. And now we should see that as a win-win, more mobility, more freedom, and fewer greenhouse gases. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people on the left who don't see that. They want less mobility, and they care as much about less mobility as uh, fewer CO2 emissions. Does that uh, help to explain why there's so many people on the left who don't seem to be as upset as most Americans are about the cost of gas? 
yes, in fact, you will often see them say that the, that the price of gas should go up. Um, I have been at environmental <laughs> conferences where they openly say that they should be ten dollars a gallon. Because do you think that would be a, a popular platform plank for the Democrats going into the next election? I think it's probably not, and we know that from Governor Inslee, who you know openly has said in the past that he wants to increase the cost of gasoline. But now that he has a policy that is doing exactly that, that is increasing the cost of gasoline by 35 or 40 cents a gallon, he denies it because he knows politically it's bad politics. And he just doesn't have the courage of his own convictions. He's not willing to say, look, this is a good idea. This is worthwhile. Um, instead, he simply is dishonest and lies about it. And we know that they know that they're lying because his own Department of Ecology had claims on their webpage that it wouldn't increase prices. And earlier this year, they scrubbed those claims from their webpage. So they try to hide the truth um, rather than just confront the reality. It doesn't appear to be working. I don't know if you saw this, Todd, but there's an amazing new poll from a group called Progressive Northwest, which is not a conservative group. But they have uh, the first credible uh, head-to-head battle between uh, Bob Ferguson, the state's attorney general, who will almost surely be the Democratic nominee for governor, and uh, Dave Reichert, the former congressman, former sheriff of King County, who will be the Republican nominee. And unbelievably, in this state, where Republicans haven't won the governorship since the 1980s, uh, all of a sudden you have Dave Reichert running two points ahead. Do you think it might have to do with some of the uh, frustration about some of the economic um, mistakes and uh, ecological mistakes and misstatements by leaders like Jay Inslee and Bob Ferguson? I don't think there's any doubt. In fact, there have been signatures collected for an initiative to repeal Washington state's climate tax that is driving up gas and energy prices so much. Um, and it appears that they will turn in those signatures, enough signatures to qualify for the ballot next week, which is a month and a half before the deadline. So people are very upset. They want to do things for the climate. They want to do things for the environment, but they want to do them rationally. They want to do them in a way that, that the cost is worth the benefit. And they recognize that the state's climate policies just are very high cost for very low benefit. This is all fascinating and important. You can find out more. Don't stay on the sidelines. Go to michaelmedved.com. Look for the green banner with sort of an image of Mount Rainier in the background for the Washington Policy Center. A real advantage for our state and this greatest nation on God.